0: Well, what a wonderful morning we've had already on this Resurrection Sunday. It's so good to see all of you again. Welcome to Grace Church of the Bay Area. This is a special day, as you know. Easter or Resurrection Sunday is when we are often blasted with various pictures. If you're on social media and you have friends that are Christians or churchgoers, perhaps even this morning, if you've checked your phone or your iPad or your PC... You've seen these pictures posted. He is risen over an empty tomb. And that is the symbol, at least today, of Jesus' resurrection, isn't it? The empty tomb because it encapsulates, really, the whole gospel. What is an empty tomb if it wasn't filled? And what is a filled tomb if a person was not dead? And what is a dead man if he wasn't once alive? Now, this is what we celebrate, not just the resurrection, but the completion of the gospel, as it were, the fulfillment of the reason Jesus Christ came to die for our sins, yes, but to be raised in victory and in a promise of newness of life. The resurrection of Jesus Christ. There is perhaps no other chapter in the Bible that speaks with as much detail on the resurrection filling in as much doctrine and theology on the resurrection of Jesus Christ, as well as the resurrection, the future resurrection of all believers, than 1 Corinthians chapter 15. If you have been with us over the past few weeks, you know that we have been studying 1 Corinthians 15, which speaks volumes about the resurrection. And the context, it's always important to look at the context to understand why something was written who the original audience was, what issues they were going through, what issues were being addressed. And in this particular context, in 1 Corinthians 15, the Apostle Paul is writing to the ancient church of Corinth, no longer existent today. This is 2,000 years ago. This is a time when Christianity was new. Jesus had just died, risen, and ascended to heaven. Christianity in cultural terms was considered a cult at the time because it was so small, and went against the prevailing religions of the time of Judaism, as well as the Roman and Greek polytheism that many of you probably remember from grade school or high school. Well, as this church grew, there were believers, and the church was growing quickly, exponentially, But they were still prone, as we are today, to false doctrine, to the pressures of the world, especially considering, unlike at least California today, back then and in that context, religion was very powerful. Almost everyone was religious and practicing a religion. And these new Christians in this new thing called the church, we call it the early church, rightly so, Many of these converts to Christianity were from these pagan religions or were from Judaism. And so they would get mixed up in what the apostles and the Christian teachers were teaching, along with what they used to believe and what their families and friends and even people infiltrating the early church were telling them to believe. They didn't even have the completed canon of scriptures as we so readily have on our phones and our tablets and in, on paper, in print. And so they were just learning. And so in many ways, we don't fault them. And what you have in 1 Corinthians is the Apostle Paul writing a letter to his beloved, to people he loves, to people he knows and calls Christians, people he has been with. But now he writes from afar because he has heard of various issues within the church, and questions, misconceptions they have. And 1 Corinthians 15 is one in which he is addressing a particular issue. It is not that they are questioning or denying or doubting the resurrection of Jesus Christ. We know that because Paul calls them Christians. And you cannot be a Christian if you don't believe and accept the resurrection of Jesus Christ. What they are confused about is the resurrection of people in the future, which the Scriptures promise. We will all die one day or be raptured, but there is a day when He comes again and where we will be resurrected in glorified bodies and we will live for eternity, not in heaven, but in a renewed and remade new heavens and new earth in physical glorified bodies. But in addressing that misconception, he addresses and teaches on the resurrection of Jesus Christ because quite simply, as he states in 1 Corinthians 15, you can't have one without the other. And so if you believe that Jesus is risen from the dead, then you must also believe that the saints, believers, Christians, will one day be raised from the dead as well because it speaks so much about the resurrection. And for those who have been here, because you, we have looked at this passage verse by verse, sometimes it's easy to lose the forest among the trees, as they say. This morning, how fitting that we are in this passage, and I want to review for you all that we have seen thus far in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And perhaps an overview of this in one sitting will help us grasp everything that we have learned. And if you haven't been with us, how much the better, because we'll be going over all that we have seen over the past few months. You get the, uh, the cheater's version. The, what are those called? Those black and yellow books, remember that? The Cliff's Notes version of what everyone else has had to endure for the past two months with my preaching. Well, turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 15, and we'll just fly through this in overview fashion. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 1 through 4, he starts off, and this isn't the start of the letter, he's already talked about various issues, and so he continues and he says, "...now I make known to you, brethren, the gospel," and that's so key, "...the gospel which I preached to you, which also you received, and which also you stand." And there we know that they're believers. They're standing in the gospel. What is the gospel? He explains it. He says, By which also you are saved, if you hold fast the word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. And here it is, the most succinct place in all of Scripture where you have the entirety of the gospel in just two verses. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures. Specifically in verses 3 and 4, this is the Gospel. The Gospel simply meaning good news, and this is the good news of salvation. Salvation from what? Salvation from our sin and the consequences of sin. Salvation of eternal punishment of a place called hell. Salvation of our broken relationship with our Creator God, because of our sin. When we talk about Christianity and all it involves on the most fundamental level, you have several basic pillars or truths. Yes, there's a lot about being a Christian. And if you were to ask a Christian, even if you yourself are a Christian, say, what is Christianity all about? They may speak for hours about all that they have done, all that they've experienced. Because yes, being a Christian involves a whole litany of morals. Often, morals that go against what we were raised with goes against the grain of society. There's also many obligations or privileges from church attendance to a specific type of family life. But, at the most fundamental level, Christianity involves a couple of realities which are both found and fixed in this message of good news, the gospel. The first is a relationship with God. Again, this is a relationship that is broken at the moment of conception for every human being. That relationship with their creator is broken because they are sinners. Sin because they inherited it from Adam, the first man who disobeyed in the Garden of Eden. Sin because we choose sin. We choose rebellion. Whether it's a white lie or a homicide, we are all sinners. And we sin all the time. We have a sin nature. It is who we are. Those outside of Christ, without Christ, they have no choice but to sin. Not that they go around stabbing people or lying all the time, but because of the depravity, because that is all that they can do. And so Christianity, first and foremost, is a fixed relationship with God. That's what reconciliation means, which we read, which Dennis read for us earlier, to reconcile, you've used that term before, well, things are bad with me and my brother, and we've reconciled. We've made amends. Meaning you were once friends. You were once at peace. Something broke that re- relationship, and now it is fixed again. You are reconciled. Reconciled. And this ministry of reconciliation comes through the intermediation of Jesus Christ. It is the only way to have a fixed relationship that is now broken, if you haven't had it fixed already, is Jesus Christ. There is no amount of money in the world that you could give away to fix that relationship. There is no uh, number of days in which you can do your best to live a good life to fix that relationship. There is No number of old proverbial ladies that you can help cross the street to have a right relationship with God. The sin and the rebellion and the gap is too wide. But that's why, in part, this is called good news. Have you ever had that relief when someone comes in and fixes some sort of relationship with you? It could be broad, like your relationship with the law. And someone says, you know what, I got you, let me pay that fine. I know someone in the courthouse, let me make a call and that relief. You don't need to show up for court, or you don't need to pay that fine, or you don't need to go to traffic school. How much more someone said, hey, you know, I talked to mom. And now she understands And she wants you, for the first time in years, to come over for Easter dinner. She understood why you did what you did. She forgives you. Everything's okay. And you're so thankful. You're so relieved. The challenge with a broken relationship with God is we sometimes don't feel it. Because though we may have a broken relationship with God, we still have our jobs. We still get a paycheck. We still enjoy food and the sunshine and the cool breeze and the flowers that, in May that the April showers bring. And so we don't have this constant feeling like, oh, you're hanging out with Mom? Okay, well, I'm not going to go then. We don't have that constant burden that we feel. But that is a reality of all men. And that's where Jesus Christ comes. And those who confess Jesus as Lord and Savior repent of their sins because of that helper, Jesus Christ. The second key pillar, foundational pillar of Christianity and what it means is not just a fixed relationship with God, but as a result of that relationship with God comes worship. Worship or seeking God's glory, seeking God's pleasure what is what motivates everything in the life of the Christian. We don't come to church because it earns us points with God. We do so because Jesus has already earned all the points possible, and we respond in love. In the same way, in that scenario where you're finally reconciled with your parent, you don't say, well, I'm glad I can finally go again, but I'm not going to go. You're so overjoyed that you show up early. Say, Mom, I'm going to bring the ham this year because you're responding to that love. And that's the Christian life. We do all of these things because Jesus has earned all the points we can get as far as salvation is concerned, and we respond to His love by loving Him. Both of these pillars of the Christian life, a relationship with God and subsequent worship of God, can be, not perfectly, no illustration is, but can be illustrated by the relationship of a child and his parent. Whereas a baby, the life of the baby was not of his own accord. He did not choose to be born. He was brought into this world by the parents. And in the same way, right when that baby is born, a parent loves their child from day one. It is an unconditional love. It is a love that even in trying to avoid the cliches, you will tell people, look, I know this is cliched, but until I had that baby, I didn't realize I could love this way. There's a love there, the parent to the child. And when you're still in the hospital, not even released yet, because he's only a few hours old, does that baby love you back? We like to think so. But that baby has no mental, logical understanding of what's going on. They don't love us back in the way that we understand love. I used to joke with people, you know, as my kids were getting older, around six months to a year old, I said, I don't know if he really loves me as his dad or I'm just his favorite toy. They just don't get it yet. And of course, as they grow... That changes. As the relationship is secured through the recognition and maturity of the child coupled with the pre-existing love of the parent, the child doesn't start responding to the love of the parent because he feels obligated to. She doesn't say, okay, you know, maybe if I clean my room, finally... Mom and dad will love me. If I can be good enough, I can earn their acceptance, earn their love. No. The child ideally responds to the love simply because that loving relationship already exists. Do not be confused, friends, whether you know Christ or not. This is the same thing with the Christian we respond not to earn God's love, but because we already have it. And we already have it because of the gospel that we read in the beginning of chapter 15 of 1 Corinthians. Jesus Christ, who is God, very God, came to earth to take the form of a human being and live the perfect life expected of us. In other words, He did not sin. Tempted. Yes. Tempted but never giving in to sin. You said, but I thought you said all men sin. That's why the only suitable and acceptable sacrifice in God's eyes would be God Himself taking the form of a man. And aside from sin, which all men and women commit, Jesus was just like us in His humanity. He needed his physical health. He needed his working organs to live. He had siblings and human experiences. As God, which he never experienced before, in his place in heaven, when he was here on earth, he got tired. He had to sleep in order to function as we do. He hungered and thirsted. He was human. At the end of his time on earth, as we read here, Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. Although perfect and guiltless, he was deemed guilty not because of his own crimes against God, but because of ours. And according to the Scriptures, simply reminds us that this was the fulfillment of prophecies. This was nothing new. This was expected. And these prophecies came hundreds of years prior and were fulfilled in intimate detail in the life of Jesus Christ. This is not something that just happened, that Jesus himself predicted just a few months earlier, and the disciples, in fear and embarrassment, said, see, see, this happened, see? No. Even the Jews, though they denied it, were looking at each other and saying, our Scriptures tell us this. We have been telling people for centuries to wait and expect, and this is exactly what was fulfilled in Jesus Christ. It was clear that he was and is the promised one. Then he died. And this is why he had to come as a human being, not just to live a sinless life as a human being, but so that he could physically die. The death death was a literal death. Which means, of course, he was literally alive as a human being, not as a superhuman, not as someone with some sort of superpowers, not as someone who couldn't die, not as a ghost. Verse 4 tells us he was buried. If you recall, the burial is a confirmation that he was indeed dead. You don't bury someone who's not dead. Or two, you don't bury someone who's just a spirit or a ghost or figment of your imagination. There are hundreds, if not thousands, of people watching him die and then seeing him be buried. And he was buried because he didn't float away. He didn't vanish into thin air. He was a corpse. And again, this was validated by the fact that they had to bury him. And then we come to Easter Sunday. It says, Paul writes, "...he was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures." Even this third day was prophesied in the Scripture. Third day guaranteeing that this wasn't just a coma, this wasn't just someone who had such a weak heartbeat that the professional Roman killers didn't notice it or couldn't feel it. Dead for three days. Not a ghost, not a vision, not a spirit, an actual human being. He was raised from the dead, he hugged, he ate, he walked. People felt his wounds from the cross because they doubted. That leads us to the next section of 1 Corinthians 15, verses 5 through 8. Paul writes, And that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. After that he appeared to more than 500 brethren at one time, most of whom remain until now, but some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. And last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared to me also. This is Paul speaking of himself. The resurrection wasn't a secret event propagated by his closest allies to save face. Hundreds of people saw him after he was raised from the dead. I might add that the historical fact of the matter is that he was crucified by Roman soldiers who were professional killers. As I mentioned in our Gerd Friday service a couple days ago, he was not the only one who was ever crucified. Many, many people were crucified. They knew what they were doing. They knew how to inflict the most pain. They knew how to speed up death if they needed to get home. And they knew how to make sure someone was dead before they were pulled off of the cross. He was killed by those who knew what they were doing. Not professional killers in the sense of a criminal who's a mass murderer today say he's a professional killer. He's a bad person. These were legal, trained, experienced, professional Roman soldiers who were experienced and trained in torturing and killing and making sure someone was dead because if they pulled someone off the cross who was supposed to be on the cross till he died and that person wasn't dead, they were next, but for real. In other words, nobody was tricking anybody here. This was a true miracle and one that God wanted to make public as evidence by the many who saw him alive. Not stumbling home after the crucifixion, not in some prehistoric ICU somewhere, but dead and buried for three days. And then he rose. He first appeared after he rose to those closest to him, of course. You would do the same. Cephas, known as Peter, then the infamous 12 disciples. What is helpful to understand is that these men were confused when he died. They were scared. To a large degree, they were actually in hiding. What do we do now? Shaking in their boots, knees knocking. They had put their faith and rejected so many people because of this man, and now he was dead, because they didn't fully understand what Jesus was saying when he said that, I will die and then rise again. Remember the famous calling out of Peter, get behind me, Satan? Why? Because one of his best friends just said, I'm going to die, and he said no. And then Jesus said, get behind me, Satan, Satan. Don't you dare thwart the will of God. I must die and be raised again. Even they were surprised at his appearing. Even they were confused when he showed up again. After those 12, he appeared to 500 people. This wasn't a distant sighting of someone hidden in the trees. This wasn't a Loch Ness monster or Sasquatch. He was with them. He was right there. He was interacting with them. We don't know if he had the time to hug all 500, but there were some. And Paul even says some are still alive now. Some have died since then, but some are alive. Go ask them. They were there. They touched him. They saw him. They saw the caked blood, the holes in his wrists and his ankles. Jesus interacted with these 500. And then finally, he appeared to the wider group of apostles, including James. And the way that Jesus appeared and the order in which Paul presents these appearances is in such a way that would hold up in a court of law. He was using the legally accepted way of presenting the facts so that the facts would be accepted. Not that this was being adjudicated in a court of law, but he was using the principles of valid eyewitness testimony as accepted in that day, which incidentally is why he doesn't mention the women which were the first to actually see Jesus after he was resurrected. In that day, women were not allowed to be eyewitnesses in a court of law. And so what Paul, as inspired by the Holy Spirit, is doing is laying out the facts as he would in a court legal document so that there can be no question that the resurrection was real. He goes then in verses 9 and 10. Again, we're in 1 Corinthians 15. He shares his personal story that centers around grace. And then Paul reminds the Corinthians that the resurrection is a truth that is preached not just by him, but by all who preach the gospel. This is found in verses 11 and 12, which ends with Paul asking a rhetorical question. Let me read those verses for you. He says, whether then it was I or they, so we preach, and so you believed. In other words, you believed all of it, including the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now, if Christ is preached that he has been raised from the dead, how do some among you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? Again, he's not talking about, when he says resurrection of the dead there in verse 12, he's not talking about them denying the resurrection of Jesus Christ. He just said, you believe this. He's saying you are denying, some of you, the resurrection, your future resurrection, the resurrection of the dead in Christ. So this refers here to the resurrection of Christians in the future, a resurrection that is unto or leads to eternal glory. Again, it is this doctrine that some of the Corinthians are denying. But again, as I mentioned when we began, he says, since the resurrection of Jesus Christ has been accepted by them, which is necessary for them to be Christians, Paul is dumbfounded. He is astonished as to how they can deny the resurrection of others. Before explaining the connection and how Jesus Christ, because He is what He calls the first fruits of those to be raised, meaning it is a promise of those who will be raised again after Him, before he gets to that, he really digs deep And tells the Corinthians, saying, if you want to deny the resurrection of believers, you thereby deny the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And if you deny the resurrection of Jesus Christ, let me tell you what you get. And he has this in verse 13 and following. He lists several hypotheticals that would exist if Christ had not been raised from the dead. Again, these are all hypothetical. First, in verse 13, he says, Jesus is dead. But if there is no resurrection of the dead, not even Christ has been raised. He's telling the Corinthians who are living just shortly after the time of the resurrection, he said, that he's still rotting. The tomb was empty, so whoever stole his body is rotting in someone's backyard and in someone's attic. He's dead. You're worshiping someone who is dead. You think you're praying to someone who hears you, but he's dead. He goes on and says, then preaching is baseless. Verse 14a If Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is vain. Vain means empty, void, without basis, fruitless. Not just the preaching of the gospel, which involves the resurrection, but the preaching of anything. If Paul were to preach as he does, Repent of your sins and be humble. Consider others as more important than yourself, he says in Philippians. Even that would be empty and baseless because what is that based on? A Christian faith that relies on the resurrection of Jesus Christ, not only in our faith, but also in the empowering to do Let's be honest, is humanly impossible on our own to consider everyone more important than ourselves. It's just one example. And he goes on in the rest of verse 14. He says, even worse than your faith is worthless. He says, your faith also is vain. Again, empty, void, without basis, fruitless. Everything that you have done in the Christian life. Every difficulty that you have endured and said, well... At least I know God is in control. Guess what? You have no proof He's in control if Jesus was not raised from the dead. Oh, I know where I'm going. I don't fear death. I know where I'm going. Well, you should. Because if Jesus is not raised from the dead, there is no victory of death. There is no assurance that He truly paid for your sins. There is no assurance that there is anyone outside of God and the angels that is in heaven or ever will be. He goes on in verse 15 and tells us that preachers are liars. He writes, moreover, we are even found to be false witnesses of God. He says we're lying about God. By preaching the gospel and including the resurrection of Jesus Christ, we have actually misrepresented God who sent us out. And what's worse, we have misrepresented God in the name of God while claiming to be speaking the word of God. But we've been lying to you. It should have ended with dead and buried. If Christ was indeed not raised. But it's not just lying. He goes on in verse, the rest of 15, to say that they've, they're actually slandering God. He says, Because we testified against God that He raised Christ, whom He did not raise, if in fact the dead are not raised. So we've actually lied about him. We've said he did something that he didn't do. You know, sometimes we think that's a good thing, right? People bragging on their kids, saying they, they did, got straight A's, but they didn't. They got straight B's or C's or worse. Makes you feel good. Grandparents are like, good job, Bobby. Way to go. And he's like, oh, that feels good. I don't know what I did. But then he grows up. Were you, li- were, were you embarrassed, Daddy? Was I not good enough? And then you start understanding that it's not just a helpful white lie, it's slander. It's slander. They are slandering God by saying God did a miracle that he did not do. And then he makes it really personal. Verses 16 and 17. He explains that if Jesus is not raised from the dead, Christians, sin is still your master. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless. You are still in your sins. Why? Because I thought he died for my sins. Yes, but there is no victory over that sin if he was just a normal human being and was not raised from the dead. And you are still in your sins and you have no one interceding at the right hand of the throne of God the Father for you because he was never raised and he never ascended. Then he goes on in verse 18. All those forefathers of the faith All of your friends, your Christians, your discipler, your pastor who led you to the Lord, if Jesus is not raised from the dead, they are all in hell. Verse 18, then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. Verse 19, he says, then if all of this is true, you are pathetic. Not in the condescending way that we use that word today. But in the true sense of the word, people should pity us. People should feel sorry for us. Verse 19, If we have hoped in Christ in this life only, we are of of all men most to be pitied. Everything that you have done, everything you have sacrificed, being here this morning, instead of sleeping in or going to an Easter brunch somewhere, pathetic, if Christ was not raised from the dead. Because you are worshipping You might as well be worshiping a rock, Zeus, Buddha, crystals, yourself. At least you're alive. And this is a good reminder. If we have hoped in Christ in this life only, this is a good reminder that Christianity is not just hoping in Christ here to help us through to make us good Christians, to help us through difficult times. But ultimately, because Jesus is raised, our hope is in the future. Hope has been called the anchor for the future. This life is a drop in the bucket. This life is a vapor. This life is good. Yes, we worship God in it. We honor God in it. It is in this life that we repent of our sins and turn to Jesus Christ and are saved but it is nothing compared to eternity. And so this is a good reminder, Christian, stop hoping in this life. And this is a reminder, if you are a guest this morning and you don't know the Lord, stop hoping in this life. Because we all know one day it will be gone. Our money, our relationships, our house, it will all go away. We know this. But Christian, you have a greater hope. So stop living just for today. Stop looking at Christ as if He is only for today, as if He's only your band-aid, your help when you need Him, because this life is tough. He is your hope for the future, for eternity. All of these things would be true, but they're not because Jesus is risen. And he goes on in verses 20 through 28. First in verse 20 he says now, But now Christ has been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who are asleep. We know that none, on, none of the things on our previous list are true because indeed Jesus has been raised from the dead. And this isn't just about an empty tomb that we can look back on. This isn't just about Resurrection Sunday year after year. This isn't just about the here and now, an amazing miracle, to be true, yes. But this is the resurrection of Jesus Christ, a promise of what is to come. The idea of firstfruits as found in the Old Testament and then used metaphorically of first believers in certain regions in the early church as we read in the New Testament means they were the first of many to come, and the many to come will be of the same quality and character of the first. In other words, the first person to be saved in a region, everyone who came after them will be saved by the same gospel and to the same Christianity. It's not that they would be the same person that shared with them, or go to the same church, or the same ethnicity, or whatever. But their salvation is exactly the same. In the Old Testament, the first fruits of corn, as they offered that up to the Lord, was a promise that they would have more of the same. If they were a farmer of corn... They don't give the first fruits of corn and miraculously go back and they have a bunch of cherry trees in their yard. It means you will have an abundance of corn. You offer up that calf as first fruits. Old Bessie will have more calves. She will not give birth to dogs or oxen. It's a promise of more to come. And in the same way, Jesus Christ as the first fruits of resurrection does not mean that our resurrection is null and void. It will happen, but it's the same in quality and character. And in Christ, we will one day have full glorified bodies, fully functioning and living eternally, sin-free. How do you know? Because Jesus is right now. Jesus is not limping because of the holes in his ankles. Jesus did not lose the use of a couple fingers because the nerves were severed by the nails in his wrists. His glorified body is fully functioning, and ours will be too. You have bad eyesight? So do I. For now. Thank you for your service. You've lost a limb. You've had brain damage. You've had neurological damage. If you are in Christ, one day that will be gone. The memories of war. You will look back and have a full understanding of God's sovereignty and you will look back at those in worship and joy. Because you will understand the plans and purposes of God. You don't like your hair color? Sorry, I'm pretty sure it's going to stay. <laughs> Unless it's gray. Well, we're kind of going beyond the Scriptures here, but you get my point. First fruits, just like Jesus Christ. Then starting in verse 21, he says, For since by a man came death, by a man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive but each in his own order Christ the first fruits after that those who are Christ at his coming this gives us an indication of the timeline of when our resurrection will occur verse 24 then comes the end when he hands over the kingdom to the god and father whom he when he rather has abolished all rule and all authority and power this is what we call eschatology If you don't know that word, good for you. It's just a fancy theological word that talks about end times, but specific times in the end of days as prophesied in the Bible, the Scriptures. There's a lot of things that are going to happen. Hollywood has gotten a grip on some of these things, and so we're a little confused. They've added things. They've taken things away. They have misrepresented how angels and demons and Satan look. And they've gotten to the point where sometimes Christians say, well, that's not even in the Bible. But there are things that are real. Armageddon is real. A final war between God and his angels and Satan and his demons is real. A book of life, real. A great white throne, real. Heaven, real. Hell, real. And there's a time that starts with a sequence of events that includes Him coming again and our resurrection where Jesus Christ will hand over the kingdom to God the Father. What does this mean? The reason Jesus came was to make right all the things that sin made wrong. And there is a day well not just when not just sin but even the world system the world order jesus will take care of and he will abolish all rule and all authority and all power what does that mean earthly politicians gone harsh regimes gone those attempting genocide, those enacting war, gone. Because there is one King of kings and one Lord of lords, and that is Jesus Christ. And there is a day in where we will fully see that as all human powers and authorities and evils and even Satan himself will be banished and done away and there will only be glory and glory and worship, and joy, and every tear will even be wiped away. This is part and parcel of what we look forward to in our resurrection, and we get to experience that for eternity. And it says the order here is that we'll be resurrected, and then this will happen. We'll be able to see that. We'll be able to witness that. Again, this life is but a drop in the bucket, but we need to be responsible. We need to preach the gospel. We need to teach our children right. Every single night of my life, I pray with my wife Lord, even though they're not believers, may my children be a positive influence for Christ on their friends than them being a negative influence. On them. And part of that is how much more susceptible they are now because they aren't believers yet. We need to be responsible. Where your money goes, how you treat your boss, how you treat your family, who you vote for, all of those things. But there is a day. Even those that we align with politically, they will be done away No more sinful human leaders. No more people where, are they just doing it for votes? Are they doing it for ego? They are gone. And we have Jesus Christ. I don't know when the world will end. And as devastating as it is, I don't know when this war will end. But I do know this. This is why we studied history in school, isn't it? That should the Lord tarry, when all of this is over, Putin's not going to be the last. In fact, there are others around the world that are just not, their wars are not as devastating or as public, their leaders are not as widely known or tied into the rest of the world. There are people trying genocide right now that we don't even know about. It's just a blip on the news. And they will not be the last and they are not the first. Hitler was not even the first. Go back in ancient history and people are doing this kind of stuff. And it'll get worse. It'll get worse not just because of technology in terms of warfare and weapons. It'll get worse not just because our world is more integrated in, our, in terms of our need for oil and economy and goods. It's just going to get worse because people become more depraved and more sin is accepted. And the depravity of society in seemingly unrelated issues lead to people who commit war crimes like Vladimir Putin. He's not the last just as he surely is not the first. But we can hope, as sure as the resurrection, that there is a day when the patience of God will be over in this sense of allowing these men to run free and reign. And Jesus Christ will say, today is the day you come with me in your resurrected body, and it will all be done away with. And the final stage of the plan will be finished as Jesus Christ presents the world with all earthly rules abolished and his redeemed glorified saints and say, Father, it is done. Your will be done. Your will has been done. Here is the kingdom. And Christian, you'll be there. Verse 25, for he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy that will be abolished is death, for he has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when he says, all things are put in subjection, it is evident that he is expected, accepted, rather, who put all things in subjection to him. When all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself also will be subjected to the one who subjected all things to him, so that God may be all in all, and the fullness of the Godhead in their finished roles, in their submission to God the Father, will be perfect and complete and for eternity." those last sections that I breeze through if they're a little bit confusing if you want more details I invite you to come back next Sunday thank you for joining us for Resurrection Sunday let's pray Heavenly Father thank you for your incredible plan of salvation and as wonderful as it is as we are believers there is so much more mind-blowing things we thank you that those who know you will be part of that to be able to witness that and despite our sin it is paid for we will be ushered in to glory Father for those who don't know you who don't have a right la- relationship with you this morning including those who might think they do but truly do not may you show them the grace and mercy you have shown so much of us that they would understand they would turn to you and be able to worship you and partake of these wonderful promises and realities. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. If that, what I prayed at the end there, does pertain to you, I truly believe, as a pastor, as a Christian, that this morning, by coming to church as someone who is not a Christian You chose to be the best place that you can be than anywhere else. To hear the truth of eternal life. If you have questions, there's nothing, absolutely nothing embarrassing about saying, I don't understand what you said. Can you explain more? Please talk to me. Frankly, you could speak to anyone that you've seen up front uh, this morning as well as those with the usher tags in the back. They, we would love to explain the gospel to you. We would enjoy, even, even if you have doubts, even if you came to argue, argue with us, talk to us. Let us hear your views as long as you hear ours. It's kind of like being the chubby guy at the gym. right? I've been the chubby guy at the gym and you're embarrassed, and maybe some YouTuber or TikToker is going to embarrass you, but you know who's like, hey, good job. It's the guy, the gym rats. Ah, so you got to start somewhere. you got to start somewhere. There's nothing embarrassing. Talk to us. Ask questions. Ask the person who brought you if someone brought you this morning. Well, let's stand together as we...